We turn to Colossians chapter 2, again recognizing the approach that we take to Scripture is sometimes word by word, sometimes we might be accused of syllable by syllable, and yet uh, all of God's Word is true, even the, the little jots and the tittles, little parts of, of a Hebrew sentence are so important for us to recognize and understand and say God is true. He is true from the beginning. His word is reliable. It is a testimony that we can take not just to the bank, because banks are kind of suspect these days, but we can take it into heaven, and it is our entrance into heaven. He is the one in whom we trust and rest. Well, Colossians chapter 2, I'll read beginning at verse 1 through verse 5, and then we're going to focus on verses 4 and 5 specifically. Paul says to this Colossian church, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul reflects on the fact that he has not been with this church in Colossae and yet loves them, pleads with God, toward God, for their benefit, for their spiritual growth. He's very burdened for them and also for the church in Laodicea and anybody else in that, in that area, that region, that has the gospel witness, has a church very evident, very growing in that vicinity, but uh, they were being troubled by false teachers. They were being deluded. They were being uh, infiltrated by folks speaking nonsense, speaking things that uh, had nothing to do with Christ, or if, if not nothing to do with, even contrary to the clear teaching of Christ, and also had issues that we'll see as we get further into chapter 2 about uh, trying to be maybe not justified by works, but at least sanctified by works. We need to do this, or we, you know, don't, don't do that, or in order for us to be accepted before God. And Paul says that's, that's, not, that's not right. You need to cling to Christ himself. He's accomplished reconciliation for you. When you walk in him, we'll see it in chapter 3, when you walk in him, let his word abide, uh, you know, dwell richly within you, then you're going to bear fruit. You're going to do the things that please him and grow. He is the one who is able to encourage our hearts. He's the one who, not just on the outer outer self, makes sure that you're clean and, and washed up and have clothes to wear, but he encourages, encourages us in the inner man, the spiritual benefit that we have knowing Christ. And that is not just for ourselves, but it's also being knit together. He says this idea of, of knitting something together. The congregation, the church, is being fashioned into one one body, one one entity, both locally, local churches, but the, the general body of Christ. We are, are knit together in love. We are attached to our head. He is the one in whom are all the wealth uh, of, of assurance, the wealth of knowledge. In verse 3, uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge reside in Christ alone. And so as we want to grow personally and as a church, we need to give attention to Christ. We could be distracted with all kind of things uh, in this current time period, this current, uh, you know, 2021, and yet Christ surpasses all these things. You remember back in chapter one, we recognized uh, Christ is the creator of everything. There's nothing that has been made, John 1 says, in relation to, in correspondence to what Paul says in, in Colossians 1, 
There's nothing that's, that's been made. Nothing we see has been made outside of Christ. Christ is it's, it's for him. It's made through him. He is the one, the, the greatest good, the highest good that we could conceive. If we want to have wisdom and knowledge, we look to him. In fact, I, didn't, I don't think I drew this out last week. Uh, there are two verses in Proverbs that reflect or, or talk about knowledge and wisdom. Colossians, or excuse me, Proverbs 1 is at verse 10. I forget now what the number is, uh, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear, and it even says specifically, the fear of Yahweh by you know the covenant name of, of God, Yahweh. The fear of him is the beginning of knowledge. And then Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says the fear of, the, of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom reside in Christ, Jesus. He is the one who is the treasure, the store of that, tre- of that uh, wisdom and knowledge. He is the source of that wisdom and knowledge. To fear Yahweh is to receive the wisdom and knowledge that come through Christ himself. That's tremendous. That's amazing. How can we, how can we ever give Jesus enough preeminence over our individual lives, over the church life, over this, this natural world? Everything is under Christ. Well, Paul, because of his absence in the church, remember Paul at this time, he's writing this, this gospel, or you might think he is, he is dictating it to a, a fellow who's writing it down for him. And he is in prison in Rome. Now, you remember, Acts, uh, we'll see it later, beginning at verse or chapter 21, I guess, is when Paul goes to Jerusalem and is arrested, and then the whole rest of the book of Acts is about him in various states of imprisonment, first in Jerusalem, then transported by night, you know, with all these warriors and cavalier people down to Aphek, uh, um, Antipatris, uh, where you know, there was a garrison, Roman garrison, but then off to Caesarea and was in prison there for two years. And two years, two years, he was in prison in this thing. And, uh, and then over the wintertime was transported by ship to Rome because he'd appealed his court, his uh, case to the Caesar. And then he was two years under house arrest there. So for five years, roughly, he's been in prison. He wrote Colossians, wrote to the Colossian believers, maybe toward the middle or the end of his imprisonment. He wrote Philippians at the very end of that. But he has been absent from them. Never was with the church in Colossae, but now he feels this absence. Now, of course, he's written other other epistles, other letters to churches, right? We have the prison epistles. Colossians is one, Philippians, Philemon, Ephesians also is another one. And yet he had a concern. He was so anxious for the spiritual growth of the church. He said it in so many different ways, even at the end of chapter one here in Colossians. But I struggle. I am so... Uh, eaten up is kind of a, a understating the case. He is so consumed with the, the spiritual progress of individual Christians, but also the church at large. And so he says in verse 4, I write this, I write what I've just said, my, my struggle, my anxiousness for you. Now, of course, he casts his care upon God and says, I'm not the founder of the church. I'm not the Savior. I'm part of the foundation, but Christ Jesus himself is the the cornerstone, the anchor of all these things. But he says, I have a daily concern for you. I say this, and my concern for you guys is that I don't want anyone, no one, to delude you, here he says in verse 4, with persuasive argument. The issue that Paul says is he, he wants them to have spiritual growth. He wants them to be mature in Christ. And the adversary in that hope, that expectation of spiritual growth, is false doctrine. You think, well, what's so, what's so serious about false doctrine? What's, what does it matter if I believe something different? Uh, well, it matters very much. You, you want to understand 
God's word to the best degree that you can. You want to study this? 2 Timothy 2, uh, 15 says, study to show yourself approved. Not just Timothy. Oh, Timothy was a preacher man. He was a apostolic designate or whatever. Well, aren't we all to grow? Aren't we all? Didn't the writer of the Hebrews said, you know, you ought to all be teachers by now, but you have need of milk and not solid food. You need to grow in, in your understanding of Scripture. And not just knowledge, but then the application of it. There's this difficulty that people do come in to delude the church. They want to come even from the inside, rise up and teach things that are not right, but also uh, savage wolves come from outside. That was the last message that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he collects with them, collects them in, in uh, Miletus and, and uh, talks to them about the the expectation he has for the church. He says, I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, I mean, this is horrif horrifying. Christ, uh, Paul had been the most time with any church. He had been with this church in Ephesus. He had seen these men. He'd raised them up from whatever they were and establish them in the faith. But he says, even certain among you, you elders, you are supposed to know better. Certain of you will rise up teaching perverse things, things you should not be teaching, in order to draw away disciples after them. And so he says, be on guard. Watch yourself. Watch your the church. Watch your, he says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine very closely. Examine yourself, he says to the Corinthians, because it's very important that we do believe and think the right thing. There are, there are outside forces and inside forces inside of the church that want to veer off into this uh, idea, this this new doctrine maybe. It's not new. It's It's as old as Satan. And yet it, it seems like, oh, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I didn't have that insight in the scripture. Now this is so, this is new and fresh. To, oh, this is, this is teaching with authority and yet not like Jesus' authority because it doesn't go back to the book. It maybe take a little, little something or other and go off with it. We'll see an example of that uh, as we look at Satan's first temptation of Eve and how he took just a little bit, kind of a, a piece of God's truth, piece of God's word, and then went off this other direction and had a persuasive argument. But Paul says, I don't want anyone to delude you. No one. Not just, uh, you know, the the uh, significant ones among us, but I don't want anybody to delude you, to lead you away. This is a deception. This is uh, anything that is contrary to God's truth. This is uh, presenting arguments that do not give proper credence to God's word. It presents false reasons that God's word cannot be trusted it is faulty. Uh, you know, God meant well, and we have the best that God could do for us in, in the scriptures we have. But, you know, we have to read between the lines sometimes. We have to kind of add some things to help us, in, especially in this 21st century world. We need to, to add to God's word so that we can, you know, really uh, uh, find it relevant to our, our current situation. Because it's so different from 2,000, 4,000 years ago when Abraham was walking the earth. I mean, things are different. We don't need to walk by faith anymore. And we need we need tangible, practical stuff. We need to take things by the hand. And Or David, you know, I, we don't need to find our refuge in God alone. We have other sources. I mean, trust in yourself. God helps those who help themselves, right? And so get after it and do it. Or, I mean, just all manner of nonsense that diminishes the glory of God and elevates man. I mean, what kind of foolishness is that? Why should we diminish the glory, the majesty, the transcendence of God in order to make us look better? There's not a whole lot of looking better. I mean, it's amazing. Just for an example, I mentioned about our bodies decaying. If you were to look back at, I don't know, your your your, your wedding photo, 
uh, or maybe your, your birthday and your first birthday uh, picture, uh, and then look at yourself now, uh, you're going to glory in that? I mean, not the, I mean, there, there is physical decay going on in us. There is, there's nothing that we should boast about in ourselves. Our boasting should be in Christ alone. But there's so much. People don't like that. People want to be enough. Well, you're not. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. Our sufficiency comes in Christ. Don't let anyone delude you. Don't let anyone draw you away from the glory, the supremacy of Christ in your life. We know that the arguments that these false teachers were presenting had to do with the person and work of Christ. That's why chapter 1 spent so much time focusing on Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. All these things that Paul drew out because understanding who Christ is is so important, so central to our identity as Christians. We're not Paulians. We're not Peterians or Petrine or whatever. We're not Jerusalemites. We're not, uh, you know, the new Templeites. We are Christians. We are attached to Christ. We are, our whole identity is wrapped up in him. Even I mentioned it many times in Colossians 3, that our life is hidden with Christ and God. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. He is the one that our very life depends upon him. Now, there are some things, when we get to this delusion by persuasive argument, there are some things that kind of sound like, hmm, that, that, that's a good idea. I should write that down on my to-do list, my, my thing. These things back in chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll see it at some time in the near future. Verse 22, 21 says, these are the different rules that you submit yourself to. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these are restrictions upon your life. You ought not do that because you never know what might happen. And verse 22 says, you know, this, this refers to things that are destined to perish with use. And it's in accordance with the uh, teaching or the commandments and teaching of men. Now he says in verse 23, you know, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. It's, it sounds good. It looks good. It looks reasonable. Uh, yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. But it has no value against fleshly indulgence. It may look good on the outside. It may seem reasonable. But when you're talking about sanctification, justification is in Christ alone, but in terms of growing in Christ, don't resort to rules. Don't resort to, I, I, I must do this, or I shouldn't do that, or, or I need to wear this, or I shouldn't wear that. Nothing of that really matters. What matters is growing in Christ, being attached to him, as we'll see later in, in chapter 3. But it seems, you know, it has the appearance of wisdom. And that's what these persuasive arguments are like. They're so almost believable, but not really when you get down to it. They are a deluding influence. You know, there's various examples of delusion or deception in Scripture. Of course, in Genesis 3, we'll look at that more, more fully in a moment. But examples like, remember when Jacob went up, Jacob, uh, son of Isaac, went up to his kinfolk to get a wife. Of course, that's what his mama said. Go get a wife from, from my, uh, my kinfolk back up there. Well, Laban, his future father-in-law, deceived him in so many different ways. First with, with you know, Jacob was going to marry Rachel, but then Laban deceived Jacob by giving the older sister Leah instead of Rachel. And then it, uh, Jacob says, 10 times you have deceptively or uh, delusionally, trying to, to fool me, changed my wages. You are a thief. You are a lion trickster kind of fella. And it was no good. Remember when Joshua came in the land during the conquest? And they were to make no treaties with anybody, no arrangements of peace with anybody in the land. They'd kill them all. Why? Well, because they were all sinners. They uh, 
God had said, uh, you guys stay down in Egypt until the, the sin of the Amorite, which is kind of a, a blanket term for all the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, Jebusites, Girgashites, all those ites. Um, Amorites is a big picture term. Until the sin of the Amorite is complete, until they filled up that stuff. Well, the Gibeonites, a city right near Jerusalem, right in the heartland of the country, they deceived Joshua. You can read about it in, in Joshua 9. But that was a delusion, a deception, in order to, that they would be spared from the destruction, the judgment of God against them. Other examples we could see, but James uh, chapter 1 and verse 22 says, not just other people deluding you, but don't delude yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves, thinking, well, I've got, you know, I've been to Bible school, I've got 10 Bibles on my shelf, and, you know, my family, this and the other thing. Don't delude yourself. If you, if you know this book, but you don't do it, if you are hearers only and not doers of the word, you delude yourself, you deceive yourself. And that is really deceptive because part of the thing about the deceptiveness of sin is it may fool yourself, but it doesn't fool other people. Uh, people can see through it. Maybe they don't tell tell you that they see how kind of you're struggling and your, your, your manner of speaking is not appropriate or pleasing to God. They might not tell you that, but they know it. They know that you're off kilter somehow. They know something's not right in your life. Don't delude yourself. Walk humbly before God and recognize he is the one who gives truth. He shines the light of his truth upon us. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words, Paul says in Ephesians 5. What's the big deal? Deceiving you with empty words. I mean, just nothing. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5 and verse 6. We need to make sure that we value and attach ourselves to the truth, not to be deluded by means of, or here he says, to delude you with these persuasive arguments against things that sound reasonable, sound profound, sound, wow, I've never heard that before. This idea of persuasive speech it is, it's referred to both positively and negatively in Scripture and also in classical Greek literature, this idea of, of uh, plausible um, ideas and, and thoughts that are, are somewhat reasonable and, and well-constructed, well-presented, and yet false. It's not, it's not right. It's not true. Uh, an example of this is uh, maybe an extended passage. You can read, just write down the 1 Corinthians 1 beginning of verse 17 into chapter 2. Such a tremendous passage where Paul begins by saying, um, I have been sent to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And he says, when I came, verse 1 of chapter 2, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, these persuasive arguments that he's talking about here. Um, I came uh, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ is central you honor Christ, your, your theology is, is righted. Uh, when we get a right theology of, of Christ, it makes sense of other things as well. Verse 3 says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It's not a good idea when you come and you have a, you're presenting a speech or some public event and you come up there fearful and trembling, your knees knocking, your dry tongue, all that kind of thing. He says, my message, my preaching were not in persuasive words. Okay, here's that. That same idea, persuasive words of wisdom. Well, how did you know that I was speaking the truth then? It was with the absolute evidence, the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This persuasive argument is not based on, you know, we just need to reason people into the kingdom. We need to 
uh, present a reasonable argument. If we present it clear enough, then people will believe. Do you think Jesus didn't present a clear enough argument? I mean, he, he was there and not many believed. Even his own disciples, whom he'd been with for three and a half years, fell away and misunderstood these things. They even doubted that he was alive after his resurrection. It's not a matter of presenting something persuasively enough. We can never do that unless there is the heart change that God provides through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no deliverance. There's no hope. There's no clarity. This idea of demonstration of the Spirit and of power is the idea that it's not just relying upon reason or logic or thinking through an idea well enough. It is based on absolute objective truth, a demonstration of power, a, a, an indication or evidence of these things. It's not to say that we need evidence to convince us of the gospel. Uh, the best evidence has been already presented. We have the creation, right? Romans 1 says from the beginning of creation, God's glory is on display, and yet people refuse to acknowledge it because then it's kind of like Jesus says in John 3, the light is there. But men hide themselves because their deeds are evil. They don't want to be exposed by the light. We want to come to the light. We want our deeds to be exposed so that we might show that we have been wrought in God. God is at work in our lives, and we can walk in that light. He says other things. In fact, here in the next little bit of Colossians 2, he says, you need to continue in the things you've received. Verse 6 says, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. You were instructed in these things by his, this man, Epiphras, so walk in them. Don't be... Don't turn aside to these false teachings. Don't rely more on reasoning than revelation, which is a problem for philosophy. He's going to talk about that in, in verse um, 8, I think it is. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. It's not to say that philosophy is bad, but the philosophy that, that relies on human reason more than God's revelation, that's wrong. That's, I mean, it's off base right from the beginning. You, you rely upon your own ability to figure things out to the neglect and even to the, the ignoring of God's truth, you're, you're not going to get to the right answers. You cannot. You are deluded. You are deluded with, with things that are not, not appropriate. Uh, Genesis 3 is that passage where we see this right on display. When, when Satan, that serpent of old, that deceiver, uh, comes and talks to Eve there in the garden. And this indicates several aspects of the power of persuasion. But you remember, he came, the serpent came, and he was more crafty. And if you want to talk about uh, cleverness of speech and uh, rational prowess, you know, the ability to fashion an argument and present truth, he did it in three sentences. Destroyed the whole world. Deception. With three sentences, how in the world did he do it? Well, he was clever. He was a clever one. He said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Has God, did God say to not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that the deal? Is that what God said? Well, it's kind of what God said, right? It refers to, to God's instruction. The one limitation he placed upon Adam and Eve was don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of tree, uh, et cetera. But he misquoted it. He immediately implanted doubt and, and kind of turning away from the clear revelation of God into Hey, you know, why did God restrict me from this? What, what is he after? What is, because his next statement is, 
Um, you surely will not die. He directly contradicts the revelation of God based on human reason, right? Because Eve thought, whoa, you know, this is pretty good. We'll see the reasoning that she goes through in verse 6. But he's, he's directly denied the clear revelation of God. You will not surely die. And then not just refusing the revelation, he now casts aspersions or he uh, accuses God of wrongdoing. God knows and the day that you eat it, that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God is jealous. He's holding things back from you. He's You can't trust him. This idea, I mean, that is persuasive. Within those few sentences, Satan has deluded Eve. Verse 6 says, when the woman saw the tree was good. Oh, yeah, good. I mean, she's been eyeing it all this time. So was Adam. Hey, there's that tree over there. Don't eat it. Don't eat from that. And they would walk on their merry way. But always that thing, that one thing that was outside of their grasp was, was so attractive to them. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes that the tree was desirable to make one wise. What'd she do? She relied on her own reason, her own wisdom, relying on that persuasive argument of that deceiver, that serpent of old Satan, the blasphemer, the murderer. And she took from the fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her and he ate. This deception threw the whole world under the bus, under the curse. And, and yet even in that moment, Christ was promised to them that they would not die, that from the seed of uh, the woman, God would raise up a deliverer. And that's what he did through Jesus Christ himself. But this the idea of persuasive argument, we see a couple of different aspects of it. Misrepresenting the truth is what Satan did right from the beginning. He cast doubt upon the truth. So first he presented, a, it's kind of like a straw man, hey, this, and then you can't trust that. I mean, that's obvious. You, you can't trust God. He directly contradicted the truth. He's taught things that were not appropriate to, you know, did not line up with God's revelation. And then you impugn or accuse God of being evil. Isn't that what we do? You know, if God is so good, then why do all these bad things happen? Well, there's a reason. It goes back to Genesis 3. We just read it because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and he cursed not just humanity, but the whole creation. This, these persuasive arguments uh, present logical reasons. It presents, uh, you know, a, a train of thought, but it really does come down to an emotional response. Eve responded by relishing the fact that somehow God has slighted her. God is holding back from me and feeling left out and feeling angry maybe with God. And, and the appeal was not so much to logic, but to this emotional thing. And that's what teachers, false teachers, will appeal to emotions. Even you think about the, the escalation of, um, of purgatory and, and uh, buying penances, you know, buying indulgences, those kind of uh, uh, thing. It's, for, it's not for you so much. It's for your dead uncle or grandpa or your father or whatever. You know, and it's a, it's a manipulation of emotion. You know, you would want to see, you wouldn't dare to withhold what you could do to get your beloved one out of purgatory, would you? Just sign right here, pay over this much money, we'll take care of it for you. We'll get your, you know, your, your, your loved one's sentence reduced, as it were, or go up to heaven himself. That, that's just a false, false reasoning, false uh, um, argument, and yet it's so powerful because it appeals to emotions, appeals to guilt and, and the obligation that we have. It's a big thing, too. When you get to the funeral home, your loved one just passed away, and maybe, you know, you don't want to cast aspersions on funeral directors, but they might make an emotional appeal to you. You would want the very best for your loved one. 
you know, this coffin or this treatment or this whatever. And you can be spending tens of thousands of dollars when you're just trying to honor your loved one. And you can go, it's just, it's persuasive argument, but it comes down to an emotional uh, response. What about the closeness, closeness or, or proximity? Where was that serpent? Is right there in that tree, right there close by Eve, almost tickling her ears with, with this, this sweet uh, speech that was going on. When false teachers are close to you, and they can be as close as a, I was going to say a radio. Anybody have a radio anymore other than your car? Uh, your, your, your phone, your computer, you listen to stuff, streaming, whatever. Or um, magazines, media, just any kind of media. There's so much closeness, so much nearness. How close is the scripture? How close are we uh, appealing to God's spirit to illumine us, to help us, uh, protect us from false doctrine? The proximity, the closeness of false teachers is very persuasive. Also, the frequency with which that persuasive argument is presented. How often do we listen to X teacher or uh, musician or or whatever you know, and what are they? What are, what is their argument, and what is what are they arguing both in terms of logic and reasons, but also the emotion underneath it? What are they appealing? You know, what is my heart, and not just you know, heart has so many different aspects, not just love, but reasoning, will, um, uh, volition, uh, discernment, being able to. But emotion so much trumps that. When it should be, if you picture it, the caboose of a train, the, the, the volition, the will is what, what pulls us along. But so much we get pulled by our caboose that things get backward and we're manipulated by our emotions. Well, uh, frequency or regular exposure to that does it. There is uh, even an, an intense emotional connection. Those Ephesian elders, I mean, they knew the church. They knew the, the people in the church. And yet somehow... Uh, based on that emotional connection they had, they, they thought, hey, I can, I can get that person and that person and they'll come after me and they'll follow after me and I've got m- the start of my own little following, right? Little, my own little church. There is that emotional connection that false teachers love to play on and draw because it's so powerful. Be careful. Do not be deluded by these things. If, you do, if the teacher does not, not just appeal or mention the scripture, but teach directly from it, and not just one verse that could be taken out of context or mis, uh, misapplied or misunderstood. We want to give attention to the whole of Scripture. He says, again, in verse 8, Colossians 2, see to it that no one, no one takes you captive. I mean, this isn't a good thing. You want to be a captive? You want to be someone who is a prisoner, uh, bound and gagged, and now uh, uh, coming over? How are you do this? Well, through philosophy, which is to say relying on reason over revelation i can figure this out do you do you know everything it's not enough to know all even the answers do you all know all the questions can you do you even know what to ask what to consider have you considered all the different aspects of that could be bearing upon this issue don't take don't do not be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception there's so much that is just empty there's nothing there. You poke it a little bit, and there's nothing in that argument. Uh, it's, a, it's a straw man that they're presenting something that's not true. Did God tell you not to eat of any tree in, of, in the garden? Man, that's, that's, that's false. That is not right. That's not an appeal to what God has said. It's a misrepresentation of him. Verse 18 of chapter 2 says, Don't let anyone keep defrauding you of your prize. 
defrauding me of my prize. What is that about? Well, yeah, you, when you are distracted from Christ, you're defrauded. You are, your, your glory, your blessing is stolen from you because of that. Now, I understand uh, the perseverance of the saints and all that, but he says, as far as it depends on each one, don't fall for it. Stick close with Christ. Don't fall for these wonderful rules. Oh, it sounds so good. Self-abasement and the worship of angels. That's why Paul spent so much time talking about the supremacy of Christ over rulers and authorities and all the principalities and powers. Christ is over that. Don't worship angels. What are you doing? And the special revelation that we have, you know, if you pay $19.95, I'll send you my special revelation from God, a special word for you, personalized, and, and uh, forget about that. You have the word of God. He has spoken to you. Don't rely on those who take their stand on visions. They say, you know, God spoke to me last night. Mm -mm. They are inflated without cause by their fleshly mind, their false reasonings. Well, these delusions come in all different ways. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, even Satan himself disguised himself as an angel of light. He appears to be presenting truth. Boy, that's, hmm, that's pretty good. Pretty good stuff. But don't, don't fall for these things. That uh, the, the doctrines of demons, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3 and, and then to 4, preach the word, draw near to the word. The whole thing about the Galatians, when Paul, the first churches that Paul established, most likely there's some disagreement about the, which churches he's referring to there, but uh, Galatians, uh, Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he says, I mean, as, almost as soon, right out of the gate, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. It sounds good, and part of the thing was we can be sanctified, we can grow in Christ, we can be you know, matured by all these rules that we have to follow and all these uh, Sabbath days and festivals and, and circumcision, all this stuff. No, this is a different gospel. And it's not, it's not a similar gospel. It's not like two of the same thing. No, we have the gospel and we have everything else. And you are falling for something that is not the gospel. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is very concerned for them. And he says, watch out that you do not be deluded by persuasive argument. One last thing, a very helpful thing. If you have a pencil, you want to write this down. Or pen works just the same. One of my professors early on, he's talking about the power of sin. And sin has so many different aspects, uh, both in behavior, but also in thought. And that's what he's talking about here. A sinful thought which questions, which accuses God of, of wrongdoing or, or not uh, disclosing everything that we need. Now, everything he has revealed everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of his son. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, but we have uh, a, the, just so powerful delusions that are among us. So here's the phrase, a lie is powerful, not because it is deceptive, but because it is delicious. You think, what in the world? Okay, a lie is powerful, not because it is deceptive, but because it is delicious. And you think, okay, what, what, is, what did he just say? The, the power or the influence of a lie is in, not that it's, it's convincing, not that it has a, a reasonable argument, not because it, it logically flows from, from the text or anything, but because what it promises is desirable to us. Isn't that what Eve did? When she saw that was good for this and the other thing, then she took and ate, contrary to any argument. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we come to sinful behavior, 
we think, well, I know that this is wrong. I know this is going to be destructive to this. The other thing, I know that eating, you know, a diet of, of nasty, sugary, whatever, for four meals out of ten or four meals out of a day, which is usually, how many meals do you have a day? Good grief. Maybe that's part of the problem, too, uh, is, is going to be a problem for me, but I'm going to eat it anyway because it's so good. Well, a lie is powerful, not because it is deceptive, not because it's believable, because it gives me what I want. It allows me to feel good about myself. It lets me feel puffed up, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We, we have this problem that we fall for deluding influences. We are so easily hoodwinked, because, not because it's believable, but because it gives us something that makes us feel good or something that appeals to our emotions, Wow, don't live by your emotions. Don't live by fear. Don't live by a false assurance that, you know, if only this happens, then my life will be easy and it'll be fine. No, put your faith in God. Let your emotions follow, but resort to the faith. In fact, we didn't even get to it. Verse 5 says, it's your faith in Christ that, that bears you through these things, bears you through false doctrine, the false uh, appeals toward sinful activity, uh, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, all these things are answered as we have our faith in Christ. Not just what we believe, but then what we do as a result of it. That the, uh, the love of Christ con- constrains me or controls me or directs me toward everything. To live as Christ, right? That is what Paul argues in so many different ways. And he says here, don't let anyone be on your guard because there are Outside influences wanting to get in, and inside, be careful. I mean, watch your tongue when you start representing or, or saying, hey, listen to this DVD or, or this speech. Or Okay, I mean, we, we need discernment on all these things, but be careful what you recommend to each other. I'm not going to legislate, okay, you need to pass it by me first, but be careful because these, these lies are so insidious and so everywhere. It's not like we have a list of 10 false teachers in the world right now and watch out for those 10. Oh, man, can you believe, you know, everyone is a theologian. We like to say, I'm no theologian, but everybody's a theologian. Atheists are are making a theological statement. Agnostics are saying a theological statement. Philosophers, humanistic, uh, secular thinkers are making a philosophical, or excuse me, a theological statement about God and a statement about creation, a statement about, about beginnings and endings and how we have to live our lives. Let's go back to the word. God is the one who's revealed and answered these things for us. Don't be deluded. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are active, you're faithful, your word is truth uh, and true from the beginning. Please help us to grow in respect to our salvation. Please help us to uh, emulate your thinking, your ideas, your behavior, your um, other things that please you. We're so grateful that all the things necessary for our life and godliness you've revealed through Christ Jesus. Please help us to be satisfied with him. We're so grateful, too, that, that you are not troubled or, or um, dan- feel endangered by inquiry or uh, questioning or curiosity or, or even outright, where's God? You know, God, are you sleeping or something? Where, where, where is justice? Where is, is uh, your judgment upon my enemies? You're big enough for all these things. You are sufficient. And you even, as you did respond to Job, were you there? Where were you? Are, do you know about this, that, and the other thing? We don't know nearly anything compared to what you know and what you are not just knowledgeable of, but you direct and you've created everything. Please help us to rest in you. Help us to draw near with 
with uh, submissive hearts that want truth, desire truth from your word. Please help us to listen to godly teachers, not just those who maybe present the truth but don't live it, but those who live it, too, that this scripture totally consumes their lives. We are grateful that you are patient with us. You are the one who is drawing us to yourself. You are the one who is our only anchor, the anchor within the veil of the in the temple to draw us near right into the very throne of God. We thank you for the truth, not just that that uh, convicts, but also truth that gives us hope. It gives life because of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Please help us to honor him. Help us to run to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.